Good afternoon. We will call the City Council's Navy Hill work session to order. The first item, uh, Mr. Clark, if you would provide us with the evacuation announcement. Upon activation of the emergency alarm signal, all persons should immediately exit the building. Please use the exits to the left or right front of the council chamber or east or west stairwell outside the rear doors of the chamber. Do not use elevators or escalators. After exiting the building, proceed to the assembly area located in the parking lot bordered by Clay 8th and 9th Streets. Citizens and employees should assist visually and hearing impaired visitors with exiting the building. And Madam President, for the record, all members of council are in attendance with the exception of Councilwoman Trammell and Vice President Hilbert. Thank you, Mr. Clark. Uh, we will proceed to the presentation for the day, uh, the project structure. Uh, and we have two presenters present, uh, Mr. Glimp and Mr. Neeringer. And this will focus on Navy Hill Development Project legal safeguards and protections. Welcome. Uh, uh, good afternoon, Madam uh, President and other distinguished council members. My name is Darren Glimpf again. It's a pleasure to be before you uh, a second time. Um, again, I'm a partner with Oric Harrington and Sutcliffe. And if you remember, we were here, I was here about two weeks ago to talk about the overall kind of document structure for the Navy Hill transaction. And today what we'd like to do is to kind of go more into the legal structure as well as the legal safeguards and project, project, protections. Um, with that, I'd like to turn it over to my colleague, Matt Neuringer, who is going to walk you through the presentation. Madam President, uh, members of the council, um, as Darren said, my name is Matt Neuringer. I'm an attorney with Orc, Harrington, and Sutcliffe. Uh, we are the external legal advisors to the city on this transaction. Uh, we've been heavily involved in the drafting of these documents uh, for the past nine or so months. And so uh, I was asked in particular because much of the <coughs> crafting and the language and the negotiations uh, is based on not only my experience but many of my colleagues who have worked on these projects uh, not only all over the United States, these types of projects all over the United States but all over the world and uh, I spend the bulk of my time uh, representing public agencies like the city in these types of complex, robust, very challenging, um, in many cases, first-of-a-kind public-private partnership transactions. Almost too much time, my wife might say. Um, but I can tell you that working with the city and the city attorney's office on this project, uh, we've been able to negotiate uh, a significant number of safeguards and protections that we're looking forward to going through today. So we've separated this into four different qu quadrants. Uh, first is the protections around the bond issuance itself. Uh, second is around the construction protections for the arena. And so we're focused primarily on the arena and the private development agreement, uh, which, which is covered under the development agreement. Uh, the arena operations and maintenance protections and the private development protections. So just cracking into it, uh, all lawyers love uh, structure charts. This is a, this is a good one uh, and, and fairly standard for a project of this kind. As you'll see, the Economic Development Authority is the contractual counterparty for a 30-year lease with Navy Hill District Corporation, which is a non-for-profit corporation here in the state. And 
Navy Hill, just as most developers in this type of structure, will subcontract the material obligations under the uh, lease agreement to an operations, concessions, and maintenance contractor for the operations and maintenance following substantial completion and the design and construction and commissioning to a design builder. Uh, and then in the middle, you have Capital City Partners, uh, which will be providing the actual oversight, project management, day-to-day -day of those two key contractors. And then obviously Navy Hill Foundation above Navy Hill District Corporation. The private investors here uh, are going to be providing financing for the project uh, through a bond issuance. And that bond issuance will be backed by revenues uh, under a cooperation agreement that the city will agree to procure on behalf of the project. And as a result of those incremental revenues, uh, repay the bonds. Uh, as we'll see in the bond issuance protections, uh, and as I'm sure has been stated many times before, those are, it's fully non-recourse to the city uh, without any legal or moral obligation to the city. Uh, the conditions precedent to the bond issue, so this is, this is critical as far as what are the protections that the city will not be, will not be required to issue any bonds, will not be required to enter into any financing agreements unless a litany of conditions precedent are first accomplished by the developer. And this is just an example of some of those key commercial issues that have to first be resolved. First and foremost, and I think critical for people's consideration, is that in order for this to be a viable project, we need to see that there's $150 million at least of private equity committed and secured market standard firm commitment equity contribution agreements prior to financial close on the bonds. We need to see another almost $300 million in debt committed, again, through market standard formal term sheets for the project. And another $15.8 million, which is the purchase price for the private development parcels, must be deposited into an escrow account for the benefit of the city. In addition to that, all of the performance security and insurances that we're going to discuss this afternoon must be in place. The construction contractor and operations maintenance contractor must be in place. Uh, the guarantees, which we'll talk about shortly, also must be in place. A room block agreement and other key contracts for the hotel must be in place. Demolition must be ready to go. We expect that demolition will commence very shortly after financial close based on the documentation and the fact that the developer would be in default if demolition does not commence within eight months of execution of the lease. And Finally, uh, and, and certainly not least, the obligations pertaining to the GRTC and the Social Services Office m must be stand, uh, satisfied at that time. Uh, and at the end, uh, we'll also talk about the affordable, affordable housing commitment, which in this case, there will have to be a clear demonstration that the $10 million uh, for affordable housing that will need to be raised by the developer is capable of being raised at that point in time. So moving on, the bond issuance protections, again, if they're not issued within 180 days, we can terminate the development agreement and the project at that point in time is terminated. Uh, to support the repayment of the bonds, uh, all sponsorship revenues from the arena up to $2.8 million annually uh, will be pledged to the EDA for repayment of the bonds from the developer. Uh, and the bonds will be issued, as I said before, special obligations secured and repaid solely from revenues identified in a Navy Hill Fund ordinance and the cooperation agreement and are non-recourse without moral or legal obligation to the EDA and the city. Construction protections. 
So for the same reasons we have strong conditions precedent to commencement of uh, to issuance of the bonds, we have that as well for commencement of construction. Because once the bonds are issued, they're going to be sat in an escrow account and available for construction, which is where the bulk of the costs are going to be. The construction uh, should not be able to commence until we know it can be successful, right? And so one of the things we negotiated for was that first, you have to demonstrate that you have final, complete design and construction documents so we know what you're doing with the money uh, before we release you to begin construction on a particular component of the project. And what that's called in the documents is NTP notice to proceed. So, that, so the, the developer can be issued several iterations of NTPs based on certain discrete packages of work. For example, the demolition could be the first package of work that they have 100% design and construction documents for and we allow them to commence. Uh, the, as, as I said before, the design-build contract must be executed. We want to know how you're going about developing the project. So the demolition plan, the health and safety plan, which is critical, the risk management plan, the quality management plan, all of these plans that will be fundamental to understanding how the developer will not only perform its work, but perform its work in compliance with the contract will also be submitted and reviewed by the city and its landlord project monitor, monitor which we'll discuss shortly. Uh, regular, regulatory approvals must be in place, insurance must be in place, and financial close must have occurred. Performance security. So where I think this development agreement uh, really does cover the city in, 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 in a belt suspenders approach is that we have three layers of strong performance-based security, which are all consistent with market expectations for a project of this kind. First and foremost is Oftentimes, you'll have a contractor, which is some type of subsidiary entity of either the design and build contractor or the O&M contractor that will enter into the actual agreement to, to build or operate and maintain the asset. But that's often not the major balance sheet of that particular company. So we want to make sure, and we will have, and we have a form of agreement that's attached to the arena lease, that both the construction contractor and the O&M contractor will have to enter into where their parent company, which is the largest balance sheet available from that company, will be guaranteeing not only the payment of all obligations, but the performance of those obligations as well. On top of that, there will be performance and payment bond, and that will be paid for um, by the developer as part of the project, and the performance pay payment bond will be sized to 100% of the contract price for construction. So in this case, that would be approximately $280 million performance of payment bond. The city will be, a, uh, will be a beneficiary of the performance of payment bond in addition to the developer. So to the extent that there is a default by the design bill contractor at any point in time, the city and a developer can claim against the surety, and as a result, the surety then has to step in and perform those obligations for the design builder or pay the penal sum to the city and to the developer to complete the project, which in this case would be $280 million. And then finally, which is fairly standard, everyone should be fairly comfortable with, is, is a retainage. Uh, so every five, uh, 5% of every disbursement from the trustee, the bond trustee, to the developer for the construction of the project will be retained in an account for the benefit of the city to the extent that a construction contractor causes any type of default by the developer under the lease associated with the, the contractor's performance or in connection with any third-party claims. The management fee, this was, this was something fairly important to us as well. We wanted to make sure that, that CCP uh, was only being paid its management fee for overseeing the, the construction to the extent construction was actually being completed and was successful. So the management fee 
other than an upfront amount that's being paid for work that's been retroactively completed, is going to be paid just like the design bill contractor, which is on a percentage of work complete. So as and when work is completed, the development fee will be released incrementally to the developer. Pretty straightforward. <clears throat> Project schedule. So this is critical. The, the schedule here is, this is a fixed firm date certain project schedule. The design bill contract will be required to be a fixed price, lump sum, date certain, fixed, uh, fixed delivery contract. So what that means is that if the project is not substantially completed, meaning fully operational as verified by the city, uh, in accordance with the project schedule, which is 36 months from the date that the final permits are issued, then the developer at that point in time would start, be, would start being assessed uh, liquidated damages by the city. Those liquidated damages start at about $5,000 per day, ratchet up to 10000 after the first 30 days, and ratchet this to 15000 after the, the, the next 30 days, and that $15,000 liquidated damage continues to run for the remainder of the long stop period, which is a 12-month grace period for them to complete before being terminated. If you add up all those liquidated damages, it caps out at about $5 million approximately, and once you get to that $5 million mark of liquidated damages and 12 months past the deadline, the city would then have the right to terminate the agreement, take over the construction contracts, make a claim against the surety, utilize the retainage, go against the parent company guarantee, utilize that entire performance security package that we just talked about, as well as all those liquidated damages to complete the project. And as I said before, in our experience, that package of security is everything you would expect to have in a project of this kind, this complexity. The design oversight uh, and quality control. This was another uh, key protection that uh, we, we think will be extraordinarily beneficial to this project and we've seen on many other projects. In order to ensure that the, the project will have adequate attention and oversight by the city and the EDA, uh, we've put in place a landlord project monitor, which will be paid for by the bond issuance, uh, not by the city, uh, but by the bond issuance. And the costs for that project monitor are capped at $500,000 through substantial completion. So that monitor's role will be overseeing the construction for the city, receiving the submittals from the contractor, and reviewing and verifying those submittals. Um, those submittals will include an iterative submission process that starts with 60 percent, uh, starts with a 100 percent schematic design that goes to a 60 percent construction and design document submittal to a 90 percent construction and design document submittal, um, and then ultimately, uh, at, once the project achieves substantial completion, there will be 100 percent as-built drawings provided for verification as well. What are we verifying against? We're verifying against benchmark requirements. Uh, that we want to make sure that what you're all approving today and what we ultimately, the city ultimately signs as of the execution date of that lease is what we get at the end of the day. And that's what the benchmark requirements are, is that that landlord project monitor who will, be, who will have a duty of care to the city will be ensuring that those design documents, that those construction documents, as and when they're submitted, that that construction, when they go to certify at substantial completion, is consistent uh, materially consistent with those benchmark requirements, meaning the the, not only the requirements in the project document, but the prior submissions as well. 
the last point here is construction contract drop-down. So as I said before, if we need to take over any of the construction contracts because of the fact that the developer has fallen over, those construction contracts, if you look in 7.13, 7 are required to have a litany of provisions in them. One of them is that they will recognize that the city, the EDA, can step in, take over the contract, finish the project directly. Uh, they will also enter into something called the direct agreement with the city so that we're directly in privity should we need to enforce those rights as well. Uh, again, a belt and suspenders approach to making sure that this is an ironclad um, structure. Uh, unknown site conditions. While, while the developers expressed to us that there's no particular concern of any uh, unknown site conditions, but that's kind of the nature of unknown site conditions, um, we did want to make sure that because of the fact that when we were told uh, one of the key principles of what we need to keep in mind the whole time we were negotiating this agreement is that the city cannot be out of pocket for anything in connection with this agreement. And so one of the things that we often see in projects, including P3 projects that I've worked on here in Virginia, is that governmental agencies will commit that if there is an unknown site condition, they will come out of pocket and pay for the costs associated with that remediation. We knew that wasn't possible here. So what we wanted to do was let's figure out an elegant as possible way to structure around this and make it work for everybody, which is critical to a public-private partnership. And so what we're doing is that the contractor is going to include in their schedule of values as part of their proposal um, to the developer a number for what they would ordinarily put into their budget for unknown site conditions. That number, instead of being reserved on their balance sheet, will be used to create an allowance that will be reserved by the bond trustee in a sub-account and held for the benefit of the city, not the contractor. To the extent that they encounter any type of unknown site condition, and I'll explain what those are, um, that money would then be available at that point in time to remediate and hopefully resolve that unknown site condition as opposed to derail the project or have to come back and seek money from the city, which is not an option. To the extent that we don't encounter any unknown site conditions, in a typical structure, the contractor would actually just keep that money, and that would be part of the profit. In this structure, we keep the money, and we use it to accelerate repayment of the bonds. And so we think that that is probably the cleanest and most elegant way to deal with this particular unknown risk um, for the benefit of the city. Um, conditions to substantial, substantial completion uh, again, for the same reasons why we have conditions for initiating construction, for issuance of the bonds, it's critical that we get it right. We do not want to take back a project and certify that a project is complete um, unless we know that it's met certain conditions. So the landlord project monitor will be critical in that inspection process. There is no deemed approval uh, in connection with substantial completion. Substantial completion can only happen upon affirmative written confirmation by the landlord project monitor. Uh, all required governmental approvals must be in place. The OMNC contract must be in place. Uh, the city use agreement for purposes of utilizing the arena itself also must be in place. So we're not going to sign off that this, this facility is completed unless we know uh, every single letter and every single word uh, for what the city is going to be entitled to with respect to that uh, facility. The operations manuals provided to the EDA for step-in purposes will be in place. And... Uh, critically, uh, the, the OMNC plan itself will also be uh, provided. Uh, that's important because at this stage, we will have a term sheet effectively of what's to expect in that OMNC plan, which is how they're going to operate, maintain, and 
enter into concession arrangements. We want to make sure that prior to certifying substantial completion, whatever plan they issue to us in order to ensure it's consistent with what we're agreeing today is also consistent with that term sheet, which is going to be attached to the, to the lease. And then finally, uh, as and when any improvements are installed onto the property and, complete, and completed on the property, uh, by automatic legal um, uh, transfer, the title to those assets are transferred to the city. And so the city actually has full title ownership uh, of all improvements on the site other than personal property, things like computers and other type of personal equipment of the developer. Operations and maintenance. Uh, we talked about the plan. Uh, so they will be responsible for routine maintenance. Uh, routine maintenance uh, is what it sounds like. Uh, and <clears throat> renewal work is that type of major repair that happens to occur every uh, several years. So roof repairs, uh, HVAC systems, elevators, escalators, sort of heavy equipment repairs and replacement, things of that nature. And so renewal work, as I said, is fully on the developer. Uh, they take the risk of renewal, uh, uh, excuse me, routine maintenance is fully on the developer. They take the risk of routine maintenance costs escalating, et cetera, over the, over the 30 year term. Uh, renewal work, however, is a shared risk in that renewal work will be completed to the extent that there is money available in the renewal work reserve account. So to protect the city, we wanted to make sure that this arena is going to continue to be a first-class arena, not in the first five years, not just in the first 10 years, but for the entire 30 years. And in order to do that, we've created a renewal work reserve account that the developer is required to not only pay a million dollars at year 10 and 20, but also $500,000 annually uh, from after its net operating income is equal to or greater than a million dollars into that renewal work reserve account. And that money will continue to accrue and grow uh, particularly during the earlier years when the project is not having any uh, renewal work uh, elements. And then the city is all, as well will contribute to that through only and only through uh, net excess parking revenues. So once the city has fully covered all of its expenses and satisfied all of its costs for its, city, uh, for its parking assets that are within this district, uh, then the next $500,000 will go into the renewal work reserve account. Uh, because the fact that there's public money going into that account, this account will be controlled through a deposit account control agreement um, for the benefit of the city. No monies can be spent from the account without the city's approval. And uh, to the extent that any uh, costs are incurred that should not have been incurred, there will, there will be an audit that the developer will have to pay for uh, and reimburse the city uh, as a result. Um, the OMC contractor itself cannot be changed, neither can the design build contractor without the city's approval. And at the end of the 30 year term, we want to make sure that the city is getting back an operational asset, an asset that's in uh, good working condition. And so those terms are clearly spelled out in Article 29 of the agreement. And you'll see there that during the last three years, the city as well as the developer will be working together to start talking about the transition process. And part of that transition is ensure that the asset is not only in a good working condition, but also addresses several other key aspects um, that are, are quantified and defined as the minimum condition. And at a high level, that minimum condition will ensure that the asset will be operational for at a minimum uh, an additional five years following the 30-year term 
in the exact same condition that it was, was in for the prior five years. So that means that the developer itself will be on the hook for upgrades, uh, modifications, replacement, et cetera, as needed to ensure that that asset is in that uh, required contractual condition at the end of the term. The default provisions for the arena are very standard with uh, industry practice. Um, to the extent that the developer, for example, terminates any of its major contractors because of their default, that would also trigger a default under the lease. Um, to the extent that any of that performance security or insurance um, is no longer in, in effect or is terminated, that would automatically trigger a default under the lease. And as I said before, with respect to the project schedule, if any of those project schedule milestones with respect to commencement or substantial completion are not met, um, then that would also uh, cause a default under the lease. The city has uh, pretty robust audit and inspection rights in Article 37. Uh, and to the extent that the developer at any point in time, either during construction or operations and maintenance, is not in compliance with the agreement and as a result has caused some type of an emergency, um, has caused the project to fall into some type of disrepair for an extended period of time, um, to the extent that there uh, is any type of disruption to the city or to the public in a material way, the city can exercise its rights under Article 18 of the agreement to step in, correct those issues, and then claim the cost that the city incurred in connection with that correction um, against the developer and its subcontractors. And so that's one of the key things to note here as well is that the indemnity in this agreement is not only an indemnity from the developer, um, but also an indemnity from uh, CCP and CCD as well, and is, is going to be one from a practical perspective that will need to get stepped down to each of the subcontractors as well. So those subcontractors, if you look at the subcontractor requirements, also have to indemnify the city. So those are the big balance sheets that as a result of that indemnity step down, we can go after those, uh, the OMNC contractor directly or the construction contractor directly. Uh, and ultimately, the remedy to the extent that any of these defaults are unable to be cured in a timely fashion uh, is termination, in which case we can utilize the subcontractor direct agreements to take over the subcontracts and continue to operate the facility in the same exact condition seamlessly or complete the construction. Okay, that's the, those are the protections on the arena. So now I'll get into the private development, which many of the same types of uh, protections exist for the private development. Um, the armory, which we consider also part of the private development, has nearly identical protections that we just described in the, in the arena lease because it also used the form of arena lease after we completed negotiations on the arena lease for purposes of the armory. The structure for the private development um, is again fairly consistent with market expectations. Uh, here you have the city itself as the counterparty as opposed to the EDA. Uh, there is a development agreement. There is also a purchase and sale agreement which will convey the parcels themselves for the private development. The development agreement governs uh, all of the private development aspects uh, the public road elements the, to, to the project, and the arena. And then the developer, uh, which is a not-for-profit, is then in a, uh, has, a, has an agreement with CCP to actually develop the project. CCP will then enter into various contracts with various other 
providers and developers uh, for each of the parcels, whether it be the hotel, uh, various retail or office developments, uh, the research facility, uh, residential developments, et cetera. Uh, CCP will raise its capital uh, from third-party investors uh, as well as lenders. And CCP will be utilized as the entity for purposes of, uh, for, for purposes of receiving third-party investment and debt. <coughs> so similar to the benchmark requirements in the lease for the arena, we have something called master, uh, the master plan uh, for the development agreement. The master plan uh, has master plan requirements under the development agreement that are used as the benchmark for measuring whether or not the project is being implemented in accordance with the letter of the contract. And so if you look at the contract, when the developer goes to uh, close on a parcel, when the developer goes to commence construction on a parcel, they will have to submit 100% schematic documents. They will have to submit 100% design and construction documents. And when we receive those, we will be verifying that they are consistent with the master plan so that the city continues to ensure that it's getting what it bargained for during this approval process. Prior to, being a, prior to having to convey any parcel to, uh, to the developer, the city will first of all have to have accomplished financial close on the bonds. And then the, the, the purchase and sale agreement includes significant number of conditions precedent for closing on each parcel. As security for not only closing on each parcel, but also completing the construction on each parcel, uh, the developer has to post the purchase price up front in an escrow account that will be held similarly to the renewal work account um, for the benefit of the city through a deposit account control agreement. And that account will be available as and when projects achieve uh, closing by the developer, meaning the developer has lined up all of the debt required to successfully complete construction on that particular private development parcel, as well as all of the equity, as well as all of the approvals and zoning requirements as well. And once the purchase price is released to the city, the city can retain that. To the extent that the developer does not achieve closing on a particular private development parcel in accordance with the project schedule, the city is also able to draw on that purchase price and retain that purchase price as effectively liquidated damages for failing to accomplish uh, closing on that particular parcel. To the extent that any of the projects, which, which many of them likely will, have performance and payment bonds for the benefit of the developer on that particular private development parcel, the city is also required to be named as an additional obligee for purposes of gaining the benefit of that performance and payment bond. So to the extent that, for example, the developer starts construction on a parcel and then construction is, it, it fails halfway through, the city has rights under a deed of trust that will be filed with the land for that particular parcel to revert that parcel back to the city, subject to lenders, lenders' rights, and retain the purchase price, which was a critical point of negotiation for this agreement. To the extent that for example, there's any type of default under this agreement, the city can then terminate all future parcels that have not achieved closing as of that date. So any parcel that has achieved closing for purposes of being able to actually finance and bank this, each, each one of these parcels, we could no longer revert those parcels that have already achieved closing and are, and are either operational 
and are either under construction, but any future parcels can then be terminated at that point. <clears throat> the construction and use covenant, hotel use covenant, and affordable housing covenant are all covenants that will be filed uh, with the land uh, for each of those applicable uh, private development parcels and will ensure that the hotel, for example, uh, continues to meet the same high-level standard that's required as of day one of the execution and development agreement for at least a uh, for at least as long as the bonds are outstanding, which should be a 30-year period. Uh, the same applies for the affordable housing covenant, and to the extent, for example, the affordable housing covenant is not being followed, the city can exercise equitable remedies to disgorge profits, for example, that otherwise would not have been um, would not have been earned, but for the fact that the affordable housing covenant was not being followed, and or uh, cause the developer through court action to convert units to affordable housing. Uh, the project reporting manager in this uh, development agreement is somewhat similar to the landlord uh, project monitor under the under the lease, in that they will be the day-to-day -day interface with a developer ensuring that that project schedule, ensuring that that master plan is being met every step of the way. And they'll be reporting back to the city and the city council on the progress. Uh, they'll also be there to review and verify the design submissions that are, are submitted to the city and ensure that there is no scenario where the city is sitting on, uh, uh, on, on submissions or submittals uh, for long extended periods of time and as a result causing delay to the project. Uh, critical to the private development is also uh, the GRTC requirements. Um, the development agreement is clear that the structure and the shell that will be created for the GRTC facility must be created and developed by the developer at its cost. Uh, the developer will not be able to close on the parcel uh, for the GRTC facility until the GRTC lease itself is agreed by the city. As a protection for ensuring that we're going to get uh, a lease that's consistent with, with what we are agreeing today, a term sheet for that lease, which will, which will set out all of the key commercial terms, will be negotiated and agreed prior to issuing the bonds. So we will not issue bonds until we know exactly what the commercial terms will be for the GRTC lease. <clears throat> the Department of Social Services office um, is also critical to Block I. Block I will not be transferred to the developer until an alternative location for the Department of Social Services is found and the parties agree mutually on the solution. Uh, to the extent that Block I, just like any other parcel as I described before, um, does not achieve closing, the city will be able to retain the full purchase price for, for Block I, notwithstanding the fact that the developer is unable to develop it. Uh, affordable housing commitment and performance targets. Uh, section 6.4 is very clear that the developer is responsible for developing itself 480 affordable housing units. Um, to the extent that the developer is able to develop uh, only 280 uh, units directly, the commitment by the developer is then to commit an additional $10 million for the benefit of construction of affordable housing units within this area. To the extent that, uh, that those requirements are not met, that is a strict breach of the agreement and the developer and all future development rights would be able to be terminated as a result. As I said before, as a condition precedent to 
issuing the bonds, the developer has to demonstrate that the $10 million commitment is there. The emerging small business and minority business enterprise commitment is $300 million in the aggregate for the project and has significant protections throughout the development agreement to ensure that, to ensure that not only uh, is that commitment there, but that there's going to be oversight and accountability throughout. The developer events of default for the development agreement are also consistent with market practice. Um, to the extent that any amount is not, is not paid, there would be an event of default. Uh, to the extent that any of the private development parcels are not timely uh, achieving closing, there would be an event of default. And a commencement of construction, uh, to the extent that any of the private development parcels don't timely uh, commence construction, there would also be an event of default. Um, the developer itself, as well as CCP and CCD, as well as key personnel, um, are committing that they're going to be in this project through stabilization. So to the extent that there is a assignment of the project or a breach of the key personnel provision, that would also cause an event of default on, under the agreement. <clears throat> to the extent that there is an event of default, for example, during construction of any one of the parcels, uh, as I said before, the city would be entitled to, through the deed of trust, revert that interest back to the city, the parcel back to the city, subject to lender's rights, and then retain the purchase price for that parcel. So at this point, I'll open it up to any questions. Mr. Jones. I want to thank you for your presentation today. Um, a lot of information in a short period of time, and I'll just ask one or two, um, and I'm sure others I'll have other questions as we move through this process. Um, you talked about affordable housing units, uh, 480 housing units required uh, to be constructed. What's the timeline within the project? Uh, and I'm sorry, I'm a little hoarse today. What, what, what is the timeline within the project for uh, these particular units to be constructed? Great. Um, so there is a there is a project schedule for each of the parcels, and the way that the affordable housing is constructed in the agreement is that it's fully integrated into all of the development parcels uh, that have residential. And so the first, at least the first four private development parcels must contain affordable housing. So if you look at section 10.2a1 of the agreement, that's clearly stated there. And so the developer shall provide at least 80 affordable housing units in that first block of four development parcels, um, which would be A2, A3, B, and E. And then the next iteration would be an additional 200 units on those same parcels, as well as C, D, I, N, and U, all in accordance with the schedule for, for those particular um, for those particular parcels. So are, are you able to say year two, year four, year five, or just where that goes in the schedule? Or am I able to just refer to that in section uh, 10.2 and get that answer? I would look, yeah, I would look at the 10.2 and then I would look at the project schedule. Okay. And so if you look at those particular parcels um, throughout the project schedule, uh, I guess the key point here is that the contractual agreement ensures that, and we spent a lot of time on this, that the affordable housing units are equitably distributed throughout all of the parcels, 
and that there couldn't be a back ending of the affordable housing commitment. It had to be real and it had to be up front just as much as it was in the back. Ms. Robertson. Um, I just want to do a follow-up to Mr. Jones' question in regards to the affordable housing. Good evening. Afternoon, excuse me. Um, thank you for the presentation. Based on what you just said um, for the schedule of affordable housing by those parcels, um, that sounds like a 280-unit commitment to me. Is that correct? So there's a yeah. So there's a firm commitment that at least 280 have to be physically constructed by the developer itself. And then if you look at 6.4, to the extent that they get to a point in the development and realize that they're not going to be able to themselves to develop more than 280, then in order to get the additional 200, they've committed to raise an additional $10 million, which they have to demonstrate prior to financial close is feasible <clears throat> um, from third parties, which amount shall be deposited into an escrow account for the benefit of the Better Housing Coalition or an equivalent organization required by the city. And that amount will be used solely for the benefit of developing an additional 200 affordable housing units and constructed in the downtown Richmond, uh, in downtown Richmond by the Better Housing Coalition. Okay, so what's the total number of housing units for the entire development? So with that, so, so their initial requirement is at a minimum 280. No, total right. housing units, uh, uh, all units, not just the affordable. Oh, for the entire project? Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to defer to, to others to the, on that. Because what I want so we to, can, we can take I that. There are two questions I, think I want to know. Mr. Sledge is coming forward. Yeah. Good afternoon, everyone. Leonard Sledge, Director of the Department of Economic Development, 2,500 units. 2,500. Yes, ma'am. Okay, so with the 480 commitment, that is a percentage of what for the 250? Excuse me. I for the 2,500 unit, what percentage are, are we making a commitment to uh, affordable housing at 480? And so if I'm understanding the question, Councilwoman Robertson, what percentage uh, are the affordable units in the entire development? Uh, as it was stated, 280 affordable units uh, in the initial development, and then the 10 million for affordable, uh, the 10 million in philanthropic giving to get to another 200 units, and then, which is, the quick math is about 20%. Uh, I can't do it in my head as, as good as I used to be able to. Uh, and then continuing on uh, a commitment for more affordable, more affordable units through the incremental new revenues in the city. Okay, so I, I'm not sure I'm hearing this correctly because it, it, it sounds as if the developer is, is demonstrating 2,000, I mean 280 units um, within the development site and even though there's a commitment for 480, it's confusing because in some ways it has been suggested that the Better Housing Coalition at 200 units, there's already been a commitment made to raise the $10 million to subsidize that and to make that a 
possible and there's no obligation that those 200 would absolutely be in within the development uh, area. But the, the understanding that I have had is that the developer is going to be responsible for 480 units. In addition to that, there was going to be a $10 million commitment for 200 units that would be done by the, house, by the Better Housing Coalition, which gives us a total of 680 affordable housing units as a part of the total development package. That's I, not correct. Yeah, I, will, I will try to restate as best that I can. 280 affordable units constructed by the developer in the development blocks that are in the agreement. Also called out in the agreement is $10 million in philanthropic giving to get to greater affordability, not necessarily within the development blocks. And then the pathway, which gets us to 480, and then a pathway to, to additional affordable, to an additional number of affordable units through the incremental revenues. And I've asked Ms. Jennifer Mullen to come up and provide additional context for that, ma'am. Welcome, Ms. Mellon. Madam President, members of City Council, that, that is correct. There are the three tranches, one within the project blocks, one within all of downtown. That's the $10 million in philanthropy. And then the third tranche is the $10 million in philanthropy through the surplus revenue. So that gets to the total of at least 680. However, as we've talked about in different community meetings, the city's excess revenues could lead to hundreds more. Okay. Uh, so my, my initial understanding as it relates to that was incorrect. Um, but I did verify my math on the, the first tranche and the second tranche. Mm -hmm. the, that which would be built by the developer, the 280 units, and the $10 million in philanthropic giving gets us just below 20%. Just below? Yeah, 19.2%. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Mr. Addison. Um, thank you, Madam President. <clears throat> a lot of information done in 30 minutes, just over. Um, trying to follow along with my limited legal experience, um, but wanted to kind of go over a couple of highlights that stood out to me. Since we're on the path of affordable housing, I'll start my third question first since it's already the topic of conversation which has been something that's been a sticking point a little bit for me. It seems that uh, I think the ratio of 80% AMI has been the number for the affordable housing that's been proposed so far. And just knowing the needs of our community, um, I definitely see that being, um, we need a, a bigger breakdown of that from 20, 40, and 60% AMI. I'm not asking for all of them or even split, but I do know that the affordability ratio of that breakdown of that 280, specifically the being constructed in the development is a key point for me that I think needs to be driven home. As this is a community benefit impact agreement kind of a proposal, I want to make sure that we're meeting the needs of our community for upward mobility of those families looking for a chance to find an opportunity to live in a cool new downtown. And so for me, that's just something that I want to make sure that we explore. I know that from our, some of our conversations previously um, that that might change some of the fee structures, et cetera. And I know that for me, I think we have an affordable housing trust fund that if we were to look at some incentives we might be able to offer to make that happen if we want to see better lower AMI incomes uh, affordability that we are open to seeing how we can make that happen. Um, so for me if you have 280 units I think the affordability ratio 80 percent that's still really high for a couple for a family household in Richmond 
Um, we need to see some of that lower numbers. I don't want to get into those details right now, but wanted to propose that as a conversation that I know that several of us share together as a topic of, of conversation. Well, I can just say that all I can say is what's in the document is, is also that we have a what's called affordable housing minimum. Um, if you look at the definitions on page four, um, there uh, it says no less than 40% of the affordable housing units uh, constructed by the developer shall be sold or leased by occupancy of households earning up to 60% of the area median income. So there is a commitment in there for 40% to go to 60%. Good. We can start from there. I think we can see if that's going to be enough or what we can work on from the experts that do affordable housing that we might not be fully apprised of doing. We want to make sure that's a broached conversation. Um, thank you for that. Um, one of the things that I think um, comes a little bit too is, so in the beginning, one of your first slides talked about the kind of agreement as it sits where pretty much the city is technically just a landlord. We own the land you want to build on, or most of it, and you're looking to kind of provide how that transfer would work. And I think that with a um, incremental financing proposal for the 80 blocks, which many of those are still public property in terms of state offices, et cetera, federal offices, and that's footprint, as well as some of our own, um, I think we need to make sure we kind of uh, look at the aspects of, you know, defining what exactly our role is. I have a lot of constituents that say this is a city project. We're building an arena. We're building all these things downtown. And I think that's a big confusion point of this is a complicated structure in which to achieve a bigger ultimate 10 block development. Um, but the city's involvement and role is something that I think has been a challenge for some of uh, my constituents specifically. So I want to make sure you could kind of hone in a little bit more on that. Um, as the paper reads, a lot of these expectations are done by the private developer side. Um, from getting the bonds covered to doing guarantees for construction timelines, all the things that make this work. The city's really worked on approving the sale of property, the rezoning of that property to meet your expectations, and then um, the terms of those incremental financing revenues to, over the 30 years, hopefully sooner, pay off that private, the public side debt, which is for the, namely, the arena. Um, so with that, I was kind of want to make sure I could understand that Am I clear in reading that correctly? Is that what I'm seeing in your talking points around what's the city's current enrollment or current involvement with this project? I think that's a very accurate description. In a public-private partnership, we try to structure it so that the party that's best placed to retain a risk is the one that does. And here, the city is really retaining only those that pertain to the government itself. And frankly... Uh, here, because of the nature of the project, um, the developer is actually taking on more risks um, associated with, for example, governmental approvals and permitting um, than you would ordinarily see uh, in other projects as, uh, because of the fact that it's not only a, an arena, which is a public asset, but also you have this very large mixed-use private development um, that's going on alongside it as well. So I, I think that's a, a very good description of the relationship between the city's responsibilities as effectively a catalyst and a um, and a facilitator of the public elements um, to the developer who's actually responsible for the actual execution, taking all the risk on for execution of the project. Uh, thank you. I just want to make sure that I heard that correctly. There's so many points of clarification in this entire proposal, as you're probably, I think, the fifth or sixth presentation we've had. So um, 
That's a good one. The other piece I have too are, you've talked a lot about um, protections throughout the construction um, and through other aspects of it. What about, I guess, protections for an unforeseen issue when you do the demolition of the existing Coliseum or other part of construction for creating a new streetscape where you might come across an environmental issue or another hazard that might be under the ground that we don't know about because really it hasn't been active as a neighborhood um, for going on 40, 50 years. So I want to make sure I understood a little bit more about what are some of those protections because I don't want to have it that you find something that's a big emergency and then you're asking for either delays or other aspects of our coverage to support that. That's great. Uh, so if you look at, uh, so Council Member, if you look at Article 16 of the agreement, uh, we spent a lot of time um, working on that. Um, it, as I said in the, pre in the presentation, unknown site conditions uh, is something that the private developer has advised us that they're not particularly concerned about at this point. But nonetheless, we wanted to make sure that we accounted for it in a robust way because of the fact that this project is unique and that the city is not coming out of pocket for anything. Uh, associated with these types of unknown contingencies. And so in order to protect against the outside risk that they do unearth some type of hazardous material condition or geotechnical condition, for example, how do we deal with that without the city having to come out of pocket? And the way that we structured it, if you look in, in Article 16, um, is we've created something known an unknown, uh, so this is 16.2.2, an unknown site condition contingency. And there the developer is required to first tell us, and the, the, the design build contractor is also required to tell us what their expectation is for those types of contingencies that they would ordinarily have. And then we would take that amount um, prior to issuing the bonds and issue debt in an amount that also includes that contingency. And instead of paying the contingency to the developer, uh, we'll reserve it in a sub-account and that sub-account will be held for, solely for the benefit of the city, and to the extent that they do encounter some type of un unknown geotechnical condition, uh, that money will be available there to address it, remediate it, and move on. And given that we are, have concerns around construction timelines, because this is a long-term project, it will probably take four to five years, if not longer. Um, delays like that could create longer-term delays, and especially in areas such as this. So to make sure that we understand exactly the expectations um, in that. So I appreciate that. I'll look in those some more depth as well. Thank you. Yeah. Mr. Jones? Uh, I'm sorry. Mr. Angelesta, if you would. Thank you, Madam President. Um, <clears throat> and thank you for the presentation. I'm sorry. Uh, our last work session, I had to skip out on uh, a lot of the conversation that uh, you all attended. However, I'm uh, pleased to see the, the summary and the outline here and the citations, um, but I think the how things work also is going to be important. And perhaps the biggest question that I'd like answered is when the RFP was issued and it said we need a transfer station. We need an affordable housing component. We need X, Y, and Z. How is this RFP answering fully, I mean, how is this proposal answering fully the original RFP, and how much has it varied? And I ask that in the sense that 
to me, I read the contract and when it says for the GRTC transfer center that, you know, we will work towards this, but if it doesn't happen, okay, it doesn't happen, but we work towards it. And the same thing, and, you know, that they then just don't get block C. And then for the social services building, well, we'll work towards it, but if it doesn't materialize, then they just won't get block I. So how then is this fully answering the RFP to its fullest? And if under Public Procurement Act, is there enough variation that this may not be a complete response to the RFP? So one of the first things we were asked to do when we first got engaged on this is exactly that, is take the RFP and take the proposal and compare it to where we are in the documentation. And we then spent uh, several months thereafter trying to marry the two up. And we, we felt very comfortable from a legal perspective in our experience on working on similar projects that by the end of this, we had exhausted significant effort to get us to that point of equilibrium as best, as best and as commercially possible for this type of development project where there are always going to be unknowns and contingencies. And so the question is, have we created sufficient enough legal rights and penalties to try and mitigate and reduce those unknowns and contingencies? That's all you can do in these types of things. And one of the things that we did is not only that, for example, um, with respect to Parcel C for GRTC, uh, would they be terminated for Parcel C if they failed to close on Parcel C, but the whole rest of the private development could go away as well. We would have the right to potentially terminate the rest of the development that had not already achieved closing. So it's a significant, and we keep the purchase price. So it's not, it's not a minor thing, um, and it's not just one parcel. Um, we tried to make sure that the, the, the levers in the favor of the city were very strong and very serious for key components of the proposal, which included GRTC, social services. Thank you. And when you all did the analysis, you also took into consideration state law for such RFPs and how much variation is permitted um, before it's deemed not a responsive one and they would have to be rebid? Yes. Okay. And that... And so what you're saying is that the thresholds there were also met? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Um, so in this big picture again, and, and just a hypothetical, let's say we meet all of the triggering events to transfer the entire city-owned properties, and we get substantially into, uh, into the project, and there's a... Uh, let's say that there's a, uh, a default in the agreement, not from the city, but from the developer side. What recourse does the city have after everything has closed if there's some future event that is a default? So 
it's a probably a two-part answer. So if, if they're still in construction, let's say you've closed, but you've not completed construction, then in that scenario, we can then revert those parcels that had not completed construction back to the city that are in default and retain the purchase price for those particular parcels. But let's say that construction has commenced and is completed and there's some other breach uh, that isn't tied to the construction. Right, there, there are rental agreements. The, the leases have long-term leases and they can also have a breach. Right. So, uh, for example, with respect to affordable housing, uh, we have an express right in the development agreement um, that allows us uh, to exercise equitable remedies, section 11.3C, uh, for specific performance injunctive relief or other equitable rem remedies, including compelling the resale or leasing of affordable housing or the hotel with respect to affordable housing units, disgorgement of rents and sale proceeds in excess of rental rates and sale prices, um, or any other rights permitted under any of the deeds of trust, um, which includes the, re the reversion. So, um, so those are the protections from a long-term perspective um, that are applicable for this project. But they're, in essence, the land is still going to be theirs, and we basically do the deal in the land we don't have an appraisal on. So what I've been told repeatedly is, well, this is all part of a negotiation. And so we get down there, and then all of a sudden, 10 years from now, it's not exactly the way that we've anticipated. So there's disgorgements. There are other recourses. But that doesn't remedy perhaps what uh, what discounts the city was willing to receive for its property in order to get these outcomes and the outcomes aren't materializing at the onset. Well, but specific performance from a court would mean that they would have to comply with okay. the requirement that's in the covenant that's filed with the land. Understood. Yeah. Okay. Um, and the covenants, though, I mean, I, I remember reading the affordable housing one. It expires after 15 years? <laughs> the affordable housing covenant... Um, I believe is at least 20 years, um, and that's one that will, may need to be, frankly, uh, looked at more closely because uh, if you look at the uh, hotel covenant, for example, it's tied to the bonds. Um, so uh, that, that's one that we're going to have to take back, right. but there is a 20-year um, requirement in the affordable housing commitment. Right. So. Uh, I think you pointed out very clearly the terms don't match up. So the bonds are issued for 30, and we're going to guarantee affordable housing for 20, yet we're still potentially paying off debt but not receiving the benefit for which we made available the land for the development. Um, I think that's a very valid point. I think I made that one one of my first meetings with Ms. Mullen and her team. But um, so... In this, and since you segued to the affordable housing, and Madam President, I'm sorry, but I do have a number of questions, and I hope you'll just bear with me. Um, but as you talk about the affordable housing, City Council passed um, <clears throat> earlier this year in February, before I think we received a, uh, a real formal uh, response here, but uh, Resolution 2018 R083. 
And if I read that to you, I think it's a very important city council resolution that addresses affordable housing. And it reads, it is the policy of the council that the council will not, period, will not consider any ordinance authorizing the execution of any agreement facilitating a development or project that includes a residential component and that involves the conveyance of an interest in city-owned real estate, which I believe all of this is, is accurate, the expenditure of city funds, in-kind donations from the city, or a tax credit or exception without a contractual obligation, as may be permitted by law, that a minimum, a minimum of 15% of the developments or projects total residential units be reserved for affordable housing. So here's my issue. Of the 280, we have fallen under the 15% threshold for what the housing development will be for the project. And there, the additional 200 is being put off on some future obligation, some future project with some future project management financing unknown. So how is the ordinances before us today adherent to a council policy to meet a 15% affordable housing threshold? I think we can uh, take this. I think it's a very comprehensive question. I've not, from, I've not looked at that ordinance, and I think it's one that we could take back and provide a response. Right. Well. And, uh, good afternoon, council member. I think it's important to focus on the 480, not the 280. Because the documents basically provide that there will be 480 units of affordable housing that will be committed by the developer for this project. So I think if you do the 480 by the total number of units, you get to the 15%. Okay, but, uh, and, and I see my colleague, Mr. Jones, um, I'll, he's really eager to talk, so I'll, well, if I may reserve some time and pass it back Yes, to it's going to go, but I would ask you, Mr. Glimp, in light of what Mr. Atalesto has just mentioned, to yes. go back and look at the resolution yes. and the implications for the development area and yes. the percent with the city-owned property. Correct. I, I know you say you haven't really vetted that, right. but that's, I don't, it begs the question. Yes. Okay, to it talk does. about the additional 200, okay. Uh, exactly. We Mr. will definitely do that. Mr. Jones, are we this. coming? I'll, I'll double down on this uh, because the Finance Committee, we took a hard stance on uh, a proposal that came before us that the same issue. They wanted to talk about where other affordable housing took place rather than focusing on this one particular project. Mm -hmm. And for me, each project should be in and of itself, that it should stand on this. My, my heartburn with this, there should be 480 within the project, mm -hmm. not somewhere else around the city. Okay. And so, so what I would like to see come back is how does that happen mm -hmm. within this project area? Not putting it anywhere else around the city, but how do we get that 15% threshold within the blocks of this development. And council member, if, it, if the additional 200 was downtown, would you be comfortable no, there? It would, it really would, it, again, there? again, okay. and, and my challenge is I want to make sure that I'm consistent. Right. We just held another developer's yep. feet to the fire mm -hmm. 
Because they, they came with the same proposal okay. that they were going to develop around, and they had other adjacent projects and things of that nature. And we held their feet to the fire to say, no, within the project that you're doing currently, mm -hmm. make it happen there. And they went back, and they came back, and they made it happen there. And so I want, I want to challenge uh, uh, everyone involved to build it there. Yep. And not, not just ship them somewhere else. Not just put it somewhere else. Mm -hmm somewhere else downtown, and you're not telling us directly where downtown that's going to take place. Thank you, Mr. Jones. Hold on, Are hold you hold able to clear yeah, in I know exactly, because we, we actually had a discussion on this point with the developer, so I definitely understand your question and your point, and we will go back to them with this. And, and let me just say, yes, I'm not interested in losing the 200 either. No, just saying. Right, because that 200 I, is critical. It's the oh, four, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the 280 but, is definitely, I think. No, no, no. I'm no, talking no. about the 480. No, I'm no, talking about the 480. Yes, right. Right, right. The 15%, and then the, I want to keep the 200. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So you'll come back with that as you take a look. We will. Thank I you. I understand your point. Okay. Mr. Angelesto, did that complete your question? No, but I, I did want to allow Mr. Jones the time because he well, seemed very eager to. Well, I. I think I it was to, to that point, that and several of us have that point. But why don't you go on and complete? Thank you. I'll punt back to Mr. Jones. I think that was one of the major items. Okay. And then we'll go forward. Thank you very much. So just some follow-up questions. So the step-in rights uh, in terms of fulfilling the completion of the arena. So let's say there's a default. The developer backs away from building the arena. The city can step in. We get ownership of all of their design construction documents. We get control over, I think, is there a, an assignment that we can uh, still proceed with the bond issuance? Right. Okay. Yeah, we get, we get full ownership of all of their construction materials, all right. of their design documents, all their intellectual property, Understood. Uh, everything. And we've done this in a very seamless way in that the contractor will enter into a direct agreement as well as the guarantor of the contractor uh, with the city so that if this happens, it switches and that becomes effective immediately. And the city is then in privity and steps into the shoes of the developer under that design bill contract. So one of the key things is that we want to get that design bill contractor well before it's signed, that, that contract well before it's signed so we can review it, A, make sure it has all those step-down requirements that we talked about in the agreement, but then also make sure it's something that we want to be able to assume should we need to assume it. Um, as well, and that it's commercial and it's consistent with our experience with those types of design build contracts in the state of Virginia. Right. And I guess, you know, nobody wants to see an agreement go into default, but in reality, is the city equipped to kind of step in? I mean, the, the financing is, is apparently there, right? The contracts are apparently there, and now it's just a default of the agreement, and then the city set, steps in. The city would be playing so, largely the same, almost the same role, uh, other than the the landlord project uh, monitor who we have in place would likely have to increase its involvement. Um, but largely the project and the construction is being driven heavily by this single entity, which is, a, it's not it's not like a traditional city project where you've got design, bid, build, where we do the design, and then we have a host of... This is one entity that's responsible for everything. 
Right. So really the role that CCP and the developers playing is obviously very important in getting the project done, but it's not that it requires necessarily um, a particular uh, expertise that, for example, the landlord project facilit facilitator isn't going to be uh, on the same level as CCP or the developer with respect to expertise and experience in finishing these types of projects. Right, so it would be much more difficult for the city to then kind of complete this. It, there would be more of what you call the landlord project man monitor uh, obligation if the city had to step in. Right, but also um, before that we have the performance and payment bond. Mm -hmm. and, the, and so that's a real thing, right? They're going to spend 1% of the contract price on that, and the surety will have to step in and remedy that particular default and finish the project. So really that's who we're going to be looking to is whatever large balance sheet surety uh, that's in place that's guaranteeing the completion of the project to complete the project. And that's only on the arena project though, correct? So that that is guaranteed on the arena, yes. Mm -hmm. And then on the road projects, it's also guaranteed. But then on the private development, um, we we expect that some of the projects will likely, larger projects, have performance and payment bond as well because it's something developers want themselves for mm -hmm. uh, protection. And so on those, we would be an additional obligee pursuant to a multiple obligee rider, and we could utilize that there as well to complete the project. So what kind of balance sheet are we talking about for the uh, surety issue? Billions. Yeah. So plenty of capacity. Large, very plenty large organization. Yes. And also... Uh, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but the performance payment bond that we have in this uh, contract is sort of best practice uh, and one that's been used on, a, on P3s here in Virginia before, which is called the Alternative Dispute Resolution Bond. So normally one of the uh, hang-ups about sureties is that they take a long time to actually perform uh, and agree to perform. Here we've created a dispute resolution clause uh, which requires that the surety perform within a 72-day period after they dispute that they're not responsible for the particular breach, for example. So that th that makes the bond real uh, and actually very useful for the city uh, from a legal perspective. Okay. Um, and I'm summarize, summarizing with one last question that has two parts. But uh, the management fee, from the way I read it, we're paying $2 million for costs already expended by the Navy Hill team that is pre, you know, ratification of, of the agreement. So we are paying retrospective costs. And then there's an additional 2% that's going as a management fee. And the 2% is tied to the amount issued on the bonds. So the 2%, um, I believe, uh, should include is the full management fee. So, uh, and so the two million is uh, the is, is a chunk of that two percent that's being paid for costs retroactively. Okay. Yeah. So that is the two million is inclusive of the larger number. Correct. What is uh, from the way that you understand it? What is the amount uh, dollar amount associated with the two percent? It's a it's what it's uh, two percent of the bond issuance of the bond issuance, right? And not the the not the bond issuance that is also creating the debt payment reserves. It's the bond. No, it's just what they manage. So the way it reads in the contract is two percent of the out of pocket administrative design and capital expenditures 
excluding any markup margin or cost for insurance or performance security. So, for example, that 1% that I just said for the performance bond, that would not go towards calculation of the 2%. Okay. So we're talking about... So it's actually less than the bond issuance. Yeah. So it's maybe about $5 million. Would you say that's about... Yeah, that sounds about that sounds about right. Um, I don't actually took my cell phones out of my pocket. But yeah, I'm just trying to get to yeah. where that number might fall. Yeah. Uh, and and that yeah, is it, this right. last one. Yeah, that's right. The second part, but the five hundred thousand that is going to the landlord project monitor mm-hmm. that is not in that management fee. Right. That's separate. that is separate. But the the project developer is responsible for, for paying a hundred percent of that cost for the project monitor. It's part of the bond issuance. Right. Part of the, okay. Yeah. So the city technically is paying for it. The yeah, the revenues under the cooperation agreement will are uh, so the incremental revenues for that go to repay the bonds, that's what's repaying. That's what's paying for the landlord project monitor. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Mr. Sledge looked like you were coming forward and then I know Ms. Gray and Mr. Jones Ms. Robertson so Yes, Madam President. Leonard Sledge, Director of Economic Development. In light of uh, Councilman Agelasto's question about the resolution or the point that you were raising about the resolution, I did want to come and add some additional commentary about the 2,500 number, which I think will, will assist Council. That 2,500 units that I referred to, that is, that is also inclusive of what would be built by the organization named in the agreement, the Better Housing Coalition. But in terms of what is in the agreement, you can also find this in the questions and responses that were provided to the Navy Hill Commission from the October 19th meeting uh, on pages 20 and 21. The actual units built in the development block, the development blocks as a part of the agreement total 2,124. And so the 280 units there gets you to about 13% uh, to the questions that were asked. And so the delta for for council uh, to be in line with the resolution that was referenced by the council by the councilman would be about an additional 39 units. But I just wanted to add that additional clarity for everyone. I appreciate that, and we'll make note. um, And 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 also, you will find in that in that Q and A, you'll see by block by development block uh, the number of units and also the number of affordable units that have been. Identified as so well. can I just ask one legal question? Since we have a resolution on the table that says council will not consider any ordinance until this issue is addressed, should the council even be debating this? Should we be spending time and energy and resources to continue this endeavor if we haven't met the 15% threshold set by our own policy that we adopted no less than seven or eight months ago? This is an opportunity to come back to this developer this development entities to put that amendment in. There's nothing that would preclude us from doing that. Thank you. Mr. Sledge, thank you for that clarification. And um, we will make note of where we have that information. I, uh, Ms. Gray? So, just to piggyback on that, are we saying it's 2,300 units now, not 2,500 within the development area? 2124, was that the correct number? In terms of 
development blocks A2, B, C, E, I, N, and U. The total number of units is 2,124. And of that unit, the 280 that we refer to as the first tranche uh, that come up as as the development is coming out of the ground are the affordable units, the number of affordable units in those development blocks. So where did the 2,500 come in? That's when you add on the additional units that will be built with the $10 million in philanthropic giving. 200 additional units? 200, 200, addition, 200 additional affordable units. 200 plus 2,124? So, again, the total number of, of residential units as a part of this development project is 2,500. So if I add 200 to that, I get 2,324. That still leaves yep. 176. Yes, ma'am, which means that in, to get to the 2,500, there are some market rate units that are included in that mix as well. Why aren't they included in the number? I'm uh, Madam President, members of council, Jennifer Mullen again. The, the 2,500 number has fluctuated as the project blocks have changed over the time that we've been negotiating. So the 2,124 is obviously a very specific number, which is where we are in our um, in our unit count right now. So, so we that, shouldn't say 2,500. So it's, it's, it's included in our responses with the 2,124 units. Okay. I'm just trying to get the numbers straight so I can right. look at percentages and everything. Uh-huh. And of those, with the, the recent um, evictions, the high, high eviction numbers within RRHA and the understanding that they are not putting those apartments, those vacant apartments back in rotation for people on wait lists for the public housing. Where does that play into any of the developments here? What I would add, what I would say to that, ma'am, is that in the development agreement, and I invite the gentleman from ORIC to come back and to speak to this as well, there is a provision where vouchers are accepted in the development. Uh, I, I will say that for for our team, that doesn't, we, we have nothing to do with the RHA eviction, so we have nothing to do with the RHA redevelopment. This is not a redevelopment project. It is a mixed-use, mixed-income project, and that is why our, our affordable rates are in line what the council has has reviewed on previous projects where they're interested in affordable housing at levels of 80% and 60%, and then the additional 200 units with the 10 million in philanthropy has the opportunity to reach lower um, AMIs, but this is not a a redevelopment project of RHA. Um, But at the same time, you just indicated, Mrs. Sledge, that this development would accept families with vouchers as... That is correct. Okay. Ms. Gray, I mean, my point, my question is more, because these, these individuals aren't getting vouchers. They're getting evictions, and this is last resort housing, and they're being evicted for $100 or less from the docket that I saw last week. There were 70 or so from Creighton Court alone, and Gilpin had more. So what, what happens to those families, and is there a place for them within this development 
And there may not be an answer right now. I'm just posing I a question. I, I would, would appreciate any opining sure. that can come back. Because they're not getting yeah. vouchers. Absolutely. I, mean, right. I, I would have to defer to RRHA's counsel on, on what that process is other than what I've read in the newspaper. So we'd be happy right. to look into that and get back to you. What so. we're looking at in terms of right now in this moment will need to be mitigated much sooner than this project would get underway. However, I think the point Mr. Sledge raised in terms of our families from our public housing communities having opportunity and choice in this development will be um, really uh, important going forward. So, well, yeah, but I don't, I think there's a short-term mitigation plan and there should be something built into any developments we're doing that addresses these critical emergent situations where people are, have nowhere to go. So, um, and it's adjacent. So if you look right. at Gilpin Court is adjacent to this development. So I just want to know what the adjacent development plan is because they're all, we should be looking at this holistically. Please feel free to come back to us with a response. I can see that you're looking at, you hear the concern. Yeah. Sure. I, I'm, okay. I, I, I'm not asking you uh, to yes. fix that. I'm yeah. just yeah. asking if anybody has considered it and how does it yeah. fit in because we're all one city and if it's not a part of the plan then. Yeah. So in the, in the documents the, the vouchers have been written into it um, and that well, it says they'll accept vouchers, but yes. are there any vouchers available? No. And are there people being evicted now that aren't being offered any other opportunities within the city? So, yeah. I'm, okay. you know, I'm concerned yeah. of what's happening now and how okay. that... Okay, so I am going to ask that we come back to this matter. We're gonna, I want to finish up the presentation this matter to do with evictions in this in moment this. with our Creighton and our Gilpin public housing community families will need to be addressed well, it's much not just sooner Gilpin and than Creighton. this. Those are the ones with the highest yes. numbers, but it's, exactly. it's all five. Exactly, but certainly the two, the ones that have been in the news most recently. Yeah. So I'm going to ask Mr. Saunders, you will hold. I'm going to take the other questions and then we'll round back with any further discussion relative to addressing those items. So. Ms. Robertson? And no, I still have questions. Oh, okay. Relative to the, the yeah. presentation. It's all relative, but yes, well, I still okay. have questions. Um, my question is, number one, um, do we have the bond parameters? Do we know what the parameters will be at this point? I asked this question at one of the first meetings, and I was told that the bond attorneys would have to provide that for me. Like what would be the maximum rate, the maximum term, the maximum amount borrowed for the arena? Well, the term the term is 30 years, um, but the rates and the pricing is all part of the process of selling the bonds and going out to the market. And so once we have the project getting towards a financial close process, we're out to the market, we'll get the pricing. But, but we know what the break-even amount is, what we need to, I mean, in order to make this a viable plan, we know what the maximum is, right? Yeah, and they are working on projections, but I will say that the city council will have the opportunity to approve a resolution that will lay out all the parameters of the bonds. But so, if, 
But if we agree to the bond and it goes to the EDA and the CAO to negotiate and then it comes back and it's outside of what we thought it would be, which has happened in the past with other agreements. Correct. But in order for the bonds to be issued, all the documents will have to be in place. And if you don't approve those documents, then they cannot issue the bond. So let me give you an example. There was a, an agreement on with the CDA on some parking mm -hmm. bonds, and the council agreed to what they were told. The underwriter went out and couldn't sell those, and they had to come back and say, well, um, we told you it was going to be you're off the hook, and then it came back to moral obligation because they couldn't sell what they were trying to put out there. And maybe um, ad-libbing some of this, but it was something like that, where, where council had to come back and agree to guarantee some of, the, some of the instruments because they weren't able to get what they anticipated going out. So I'd like to know what the parameters are before we agree to something, and then it's, so, it's too big to fail, so we have to agree to something when it comes back. So, I mean, again, so you'll have the resolution that you need to adopt for the issuance of the bonds, you know, for that the ED, when the EDA basically adopts their resolution to do the bond issuance, there will be a resolution that comes to the city council that will lay out all the parameters of those bonds. So that is something you will have to approve. So that's number one. Secondly, before those bonds are issued, all of the documents will need to be it executed. And if you don't approve those documents, and you know, then the bonds cannot be issued. And these documents, once you approve them, cannot be changed. But I've they seen will be where approved by you substantially final, so they cannot be changed. I've seen where other governing bodies were offered the parameters going in, so you know what you're pretty much agreeing to. You, you can't guarantee what the rates are going to be on what date you're going to lock in, and you can't guarantee on all of it. But it's, it's like when you purchase a home, you get your good faith estimate. Where's our good faith estimate of what those bonds will be? And, Roland, I don't know if you want to. Hi, Roland Cooch with Davenport and Company, financial advisor to the city of Richmond. Um, as we've had in some preliminary presentations in the past several weeks, the estimate right now for the bonds that we're looking at um, is roughly um, $311 million, as we've seen on some of these presentations. That's based on certain market interest rates for the tax exempt and taxable. Um, as, as Darren had said, uh, the colleagues from, from um, ORIC, who serve as the city's bond council on their traditional bond issuance as well, the, once the, the agreements are, are agreed upon by council, they're executed by council, and <clears throat> we know basically this is the transaction. It's going to be a non-recourse transaction. It's going to have a certain amount of coverage. It's going to fund the arena in this amount. It's going to uh, be paid from incremental revenues. Once we have that transaction memorialized in terms of the documents that you see here, an authorizing resolution that, as you said, there are some interest rates. We don't know exactly what they're going to be today. We have an indication of what they may be. But when the bonds are issued, the market could change. And so there will be some parameters for those interest rates. Um, but by and large, what is, what is signed on by council or approved by council with respect to this transaction 
in that resolution, if the bonds cannot be sold pursuant to those, they will not be sold. It's not what we said from day one with respect to this transaction is that it's non-recourse, and if it comes back or if it gets puts back to the city, and the city is then asked to be put on the hook, that's one of the things that would preclude this from being issued. Okay. So. So right now you can't give me what the max amounts might. We've the the what you hope for and what the maximum is that would make we, this deal not work. We know within the the range of revenues that's being estimated right now, the amount of construction that's needed two hundred and forty five million for the arena, the one point five times debt service coverage that's needed. The general estimate right now is that with the tax exempt and taxable estimated rates, the bond size is roughly $311 million. That could change depending on whether or not there's a lot of things in the bond markets that if, if investors require a certain type of structure of the bonds, interest rates and yields, that number could go up and down, but we could still end up at the exact same debt service coverage and the exact same funding requirements for the arena. There's a lot of variables that could impact that, but ultimately, as long as we know we're shooting for that 150 coverage, we've got the revenues that we've got, and we've got the amount that we need to fund, which is the $245 million for the arena, we know we're not going to issue any more or any less than's needed to get that done. And, it's, and we also know that based on the document structure that we have today and the transaction that's been negotiated with respect to the, the type of bonds and the sources of payments, we're not pledging any backstop from the city to make good on those revenues should they be short. And that's the risk that the investor is taking with non-recourse bonds. And with the arena only, they're, they're getting taxes rebated back, how much are they leasing the arena for, and when does that payment begin? A dollar, dollar a year. So a dollar a year, but then they, the taxes that would be due on the arena would be rebated back to the operator? Are you talking about the real estate that is a, still going to be a city-owned asset? So it is a, a public public asset there. So I guess, Darren, can you? There's there's a reference to a rebate. So so I mean, because a lot of the taxes are being used to repay the bonds. So you know, they kind of comprise the central city incremental revenues. So the majority of the taxes that are going to be generated from the TIF area as well as other, you know, like sales taxes and things like that, meals tax, they're going to all be used as part of the kind of pledge security for the repayment of the bonds. There won't be any. Yeah, no. Right, because it's a public asset. Right. Is that your question about real estate taxes? on? I may have to submit that question in writing because I have to find the exact section of the agreements that I'm referencing. And Ms. Brown will get that. Uh, Ms. Gray, if you will make sure you get the exact question to okay. her so she can get it back to the developers. And, and my other question, I mean, we're sitting here saying the worst case, the city takes over the construction 
that would be the worst, worst case because we know how things are not being well managed within the Every day last week, I got a call from someone trying to get a service through the city, and most of it came through permits and inspections, and it's not looking good. Things are not getting better. They're getting worse. So to tell me that the, the backstop on this whole, if they fail to perform, is the city taking over this construction, that's not... That's not comfort to my ears at this point. And, and, I was, I, and I'm going to let Matt answer this as well, but I have seen this in D.C. where we have had a developer default. And then it kind of shifts to the city. And what the city does, because, again, the city, you know, they are charged with operating a city, not developing an arena. You know, so what they typically do is that then they will hire another developer or bring in somebody else who has the expertise to finish that project. But we again, have that. We have we have that going on now with school construction. Yeah, it's costing oh. us a whole lot more than but, I believe it should be. But yeah, but one of the key things here is that we have built in these security uh, protections. You know, one of it is that the bond proceeds will still be held in escrow. You know, so you'll have that money to pay. Also, there's the retainage. Five percent of that money will be retained. And then there's going to be the payment of performance bonds. So there are going to be several layers of protection to protect the city if there is a default by the developer and you would need to kind of shift gears and find another developer to finish the project. And I think it comes down to a question of how well do we trust the city. If you can't come down and pay a utility bill and it gets applied correctly, how are they going to manage I don't think that's a matter for I mean, it is, you hear No, it's, it may not be, but it is a concern, and it is what I'm hearing from no, I hear you. people every day. How do you... Right. Basic functions of the city are not right. getting accomplished that, on a daily basis. So yeah, how can the city session, manage this work session, a project of this magnitude? I hear you. This work session is not meant to address that. That's a matter well, to, be a question that to be addressed. Well, it's a question I'm asking daily, so I want to get it on the record, if I might. Duly noted, and that's with the administration and a follow-up to this discussion. Ms. Robertson, Mr. Jones, and then we're going to wrap up. What I want to make sure of is that you know that there will be other questions coming to you. Megan Brown, our staff person, will be the point person to get those to you uh, and get responses back to us. Ms. Robertson? Mr. Jones, and then Ms. Robertson, and then we will. Um, when we say that um, if something goes on, the city will have to approve, does that mean or do you mean that it will come back to the administration or before council or both? Because you said a few times in your presentation the city will have to. The city so, will so the way the mechanic works is that we want to make the project uh, successful. And so we have the landlord project monitor in place who is going to be professional um, engineering construction company uh, that has the expertise in this area that will be representing the city uh, and the EDA for purposes of reviewing, for example, a 100% design schematic that comes in. And he'll compare that design schematic against what, what's in the contract, what was been agreed, and confirm and verify that there's no material deviation. So that's how the, me the mechanic works with respect to submittals. That, that, that doesn't answer the question. Uh, and, and Madam, I hear the question, and it time. is a question that I was on my list too. But right, 
and I will defer, mm -hmm. but just as in the sake of time, if I could get that answer. Yes, I, I would like to have the response as well, and certainly in writing, because there are multiple places in the presentation that references city approval, but that's clarification of that, and you can take the time to. Yeah, I can, just to answer your question, uh, Councilmember Joe, it's the city administration. Yep. Okay, thank you. Ms. Robertson. Thank you, Madam Chair. I'm, I'm um, so, can we get clarification from the city attorney on this? Because in my prior, I'm sorry, Ms. Robertson, but this Mr. Agilesto, I'm going to go on and have Ms. Robertson <laughs> I'm be able to. No, yeah. no, we will well, come back to this because this is a do. big legal issue. You. And the city attorney had always advised me anytime that we have a contract and it references the city, that right. the only entity that can act on behalf of the city is the city council, unless. We give away our, our authority. Which we have in Ms. Agilesto, Ms. Robertson. So the city attorney will opine back at a later time. Ms. Robertson, if you would. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, so I just have a couple of questions that I need some clarification on. One is in regards to the actual number of units that, housing units that will be developed in the, as a part of the development. Uh, within the development footprint. Um, the, I'm not sure that I'm counting numbers correctly from what we thought was 1,005, that is, I mean 2,005, that is now 2,124. And the actual number of, of affordable housing to meet the threshold of the legislation that it only took me about a year or more to get passed by council for a 15% threshold. So um, if we can, if I can get some clarification on those numbers, that would be extremely helpful. And if that, uh, the number of units of affordable housing within the footprint to meet that 15% threshold is inclusive of the 200 units that we are under the understanding that the housing, that Better Housing Coalition would be developing, or it is not including that clarification I need on that as well. The other thing that I need some clarification on is as it relates to the bonding, the bonds, and the coverage of the costs associated with the bond is directly related to only the arena. Is that correct? That's correct? Yes. Yeah. So Only to the arena. The bond issuance will right. be used solely for the cost of the arena. Okay. So it would be good to get a simple um, clarification from you as to additional investments, private investments, that will be made in dollars by the entity, whether it is the Omri, uh, whether it's street improvements or other kinds of costs that is associated with the development. And what I want to know is what are the requirements before issuing of the bonds, what documents, what documents has to be agreed upon and signed off on as it relates to the Greater Richmond Transit and the Social Service Building. I heard you mention something to that, but I missed some of the details. Correct. And you can just correct me if I'm wrong, but regarding the GRTC Center, there would have to be a lease in place for that, as well as the de and Department of Social Services as well, correct? Right. 
right. So it's okay. Yeah. So for the GRTC, there'll be a term sheet that will have all the key commercial terms. So all of the substance of what the deal is between the city and the developer have to be agreed before issuing the bonds. And then we'll paper it with a formal lease between the period of issuance of the bonds and actually submitting that to FTA for approval and, and, and their comments. And then once we get FTA comments, then we'll have a final lease that will be have to get executed before parcel C can be conveyed. Okay, so just to be sure that I'm understanding what that means, will the full costs for the build-out of the uh, Greater Richmond Transfer Center be included in those documents, or are, are we talking about an agreement that guarantees a shell that will be built out? Yeah, it's a, it's a shell. It's a, okay, yeah. so there will not be any uh, sources and uses budget that comes along with that to guarantee that there's um, means of actually financing the outfit of the shell. Yeah, that's that would be something that we defer to the, the city on um, because that involves the actual sort of second step of the city and, and GRTC in particular, fitting out the facility, appropriating funds for the facility. But What's your schedule as far as building the shell? If there's no assurance of uses, sources of funds to build out the infrastructure for for the shell. I mean, yeah. you're, you're going to invest, uh, these are private dollars that are going to be invested to build a shell? Correct. Okay. So what guarantees are you building in to cover uh, your security as it relates to the Greater Richmond Transit actually being outfitted? And the same for the social services. Yes, Councilwoman Robertson, uh, Bonnie Ashley. Not only do I represent the city, but I represent GRTC as well. My understanding of the way the transfer center must work legally is the shell is provided by the developer, but GRTC will use federal funds to outfit it for its use. And whatever... Uh, commercial terms that involves when the money goes in, where it's coming from, that is part of the agreement, those commercial terms that need to be in place prior to financial close in order to ensure that there will actually be a transfer center on a site. I hope that answers your question. Okay, so that, that will have to be satisfied from, we would get that from Greater Richmond Transit to ensure that the bill out of the shell is going to take place before the bonds? Uh, no. No, it can't because they, they need the money to build that shell. But the arrangement between... No, I mean, not done, but I mean, as a part of the agreement where we have identified those sources of funds before we uh, go to market for the bonds. I, I think most likely we will because we know now that the bonds will pay for the shell and that GRTC will, because it has to have see, site is, control. This is where I'm getting confused because I asked first, was the bonds only going to pay for the arena? And you said yes. yes. And now you're saying that the bonds will also pay for the shell of the Greater Richmond Transit. So, uh, I apologize. Okay. Um, right. That's fine. 
That's, the, that's part of the sure private I'm, development. Okay, okay. I just want to make sure we're clear on that. So the clarification that I want as relates to the social service bill, but, but I am understanding you correctly. Before we go to market for the bonds, we will know the sources of funding for the bill out of the shell, right, from Greater Richmond Transit. Madam President, and members of council, Susan Eastridge, part of the Navy Hill development team. I can provide a little clarification because I'm working with GRTC directly to figure out how we might structure a lease between the private development and G GRTC. There's actually an involved process for GRTC to gain approval of some funds that are set aside from the federal government, government FTA, that they can use it for a capital expenditure. We have a meeting this week with the new head of the GRTC to start sorting through with things they can do and things that they cannot do with those funds. We carefully wrote into our agreements that the conditions precedent was a term sheet with GRTC for the transfer or transit center for them. The reason it was had to be reduced to a term sheet only is that GRTC then takes that term sheet to the FTA for an approval process that will probably take six to nine months before they're assured of being able to access those funds. It's my understanding from GRTC that they have um, more than one capital improvement requirement, so they need to sort through actually what they need to use their federal funds for. So we're going through a process. It's definitely a condition precedent that we need to know the future of that GRTC facility before we go to the bond market for the arena proceeds. Okay. I have just a couple more questions. Um, as it relates to the terms and conditions of the bonding, if the projections for the revenue from the total TIF area is significant reduced because of the lack of clarity at the present time of the status of the second building for Dominion that will impact the 1.5% ratio? At what point um, would we be able to determine whether or not this development as presented to us failed to meet the revenue projections to satisfy the ratio for the bond, the types of bonds that we are leveraging, um, and whether or not this is a major impediment to this development moving forward without knowing for certain uh, the revenue that we projected from the second uh, Dominion Tower. Ms. Ms. Robinson, if the second Dominion Tower, which is in the financial projections, does not happen, um, and we rerun the number, and the numbers are rerun based on the 245 million arena cost. And if that's absolutely what's necessary to build the arena, the 150 coverage is not will not be obtained if the second Dominion Tower is not in there. 
That's if that's the if that's the question you're asking. Uh, would you repeat that? I if, can't. The, if you extract the second Dominion Tower out of the revenue projections, mm -hmm. based on the numbers we've seen from Municap and the developer, mm -hmm. then the the numbers won't achieve 150 coverage based on the current interest rates and the um, the amount the cost the projected cost of the arena. Okay, so if that's the case. Um, is it necessary for us to continue having these discussions that we cannot absolutely affirm that the projections um, excluding this towel, I mean, what I'm hearing you saying is that we exclude this towel, we don't have the revenue that's necessary to meet the deal. Um, and we have not gotten a confirmation that the second towel is going to be built and factored into the revenue screen. And if we know today, if that's the case and we can't get a confirmation that our revenue screen is short and it would not satisfy the conditions in order to, to, uh, to issue the types of bonds that we have been basing this entire deal on, what are we doing to shore up that that shortage is not there? Because otherwise, I don't know why we would continue having this conversation. The reason we understand that the Second Dominion Tower is, has been included, I'll defer to, to Susan on this. Again, Susan Eastridge with the Navy Hill Development um, Team. The numbers that we're currently talking about, the projection that we have on the table, projection number 26 going into number 27, it's, it's an exercise to understand what's the maximum bond proceeds that we can achieve with the revenue projection. So the projection in front of us right now show total proceeds for a new arena of $245 million. Right now, the arena isn't costing $245 million. We're, we're at a budget of more closer to $235, where we are on the drawings. What's important to note is that we're doing sensitivities right now to show what happens if we take out the second Dominion Tower. Um, we're making sure that we're looking at what the break-even is for um, the first series of buildings. So we'll have some um, quantifiable information for you this week on what those sensitivities show. But the lack of a second Dominion Tower, which is in our projection simply because it is in the city planning pipeline, so we include it in the projection, what it will do is it will it'll reduce bond proceeds from 245 that we currently are looking at to something like 240. So it doesn't take away the ability to have the arena realized. It's really just looking at what the maximum proceeds look like based on the projection. Does that help at all? This um, Ms. Robertson. I'm not sure that it does because I'm hearing one of you say that, and after a while I'm getting confused as to which one of you said, said what. It was a lot of you all talking. I guess you found the same way up here. But um, Ms. Robinson, if I can, if I can just because I'm understanding that you said previously that if that your projections are based on that, and that if the second tower is not built, then the projected revenues would be not sufficient enough to meet the 1.5% that is necessary to leverage the bonding as we would like to see done. Right. To clarify, 
What I said was that if the arena is absolutely costing $245 million, if that's the assumption we need to hit, and we need 150 coverage based on the assumption assumed interest rates, that mathematical model does not achieve 150 coverage. What Susan just said is that, and she further elaborated on those three, three pieces, what Susan said is if the arena comes in less than 245, plus or minus a 5 million, 7 million, if the Dominion Tower is not in there, potentially, and also if interest rates change, that could also affect the ability to hit 150 coverage. So we've got, a, we've got several variables here that really come to play and all have to come together at the same time. We could, we could also be in a position where if, we, if the arena costs less than 245 and the second Dominion Tower is not in there, and if coverage works at 150, but if we move forward another year and the markets change, interest rates may also prevent us from achieving a financeable transaction as well. So there's, there's a lot of variables that come into play that need to be monitored. But what we do know is based on the current projections, we've got an assumption that Dominion goes forward based on the stage at where it's at in terms of planning. And we also have an assumption that the arena is about $245 million on a conservative estimate. There's other sensitivities that, as Susan has said as well, that are going to be worked on and come forth as well this week, hopefully or at some point, to show what the variances and what the sensitivities are to those numbers. But what we have right now to answer your question is, if we take one of those three of current assumptions that we have today and adjust them plus or minus, we may not have a financeable transaction. Okay, so my so, my response, I'm sorry, Dr. Newbill. If you would, Brenna. This is my first yeah. bite at the apple here. Mm -hmm. um, what's important to me is that council is going to be asked to make a decision on the documents that we have before us, unless there are amendments made between now and then. The only reason, in my mind, that we have an 80-block TIF area specifically was to reach to the two towers of Dominion. And if Dominion is not willing and ready to affirm that that tower is going to be built, then the assumptions that we've made thus far. Uh, I appreciate sensitivity to readjust all things, interest rates, whatever, everything can change, but there are some things that are solid. Uh, we do not expect that the development will come back to us and said our projection was that we could get a first-class hotel, but that's not working out, so we're not going to build a hotel, okay? Uh, we do not expect that we would extend this development over an 80-block area of downtown Richmond to reach these towers and, not, and have that as the sensitivity issue that may or may not make this deal work or not work. And so um, I, that's a critical point for me. I just want to make sure that you're hearing me as it relates to that. Last question, Madam uh, Chair. 
um, there's been questions as it relates to, and you've given us lots of information of the securities that are built in, risk management factors that are built in this deal to make sure that the city as well as the private sector investment is, is protected. Um, one of the things that is of significant importance to us is that I want to be able to clearly understand who is overseeing the operation, the execution of this development agreement if it's approved by council. That is city staff or hard contractors on behalf of the city to oversee the execution of this. Um, there have been several mentioning of different entities that are going to be involved in this, uh, but it's it needs to be clarified which are hired by the developer for their purpose of oversight and overseeing this, and if there are contractors that are being hired by the city for the purpose of uh, overseeing the execution, and also a clear description of what the city's role is going to be and, and, and a nice flow chart of who's going to be responsible for what to make sure that all of these agreements, are over, the oversight is provided on behalf of the city. And I'm not sure that I'm seeing this in this document, that I can delineate it. And Mr. Neringer, I'm going to ask for that in writing as well as response to Ms. Robertson's question um, prior to. Um, there was some mention in the past in terms of uplifts. We haven't heard any of that mentioned. Uh, and there will be additional questions that will definitely come to you. We uh, agreed to have a work session that will go until 5. I want to thank you both for your presentation. This session is adjourned.